We're reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm just going to read a few short verses, but actually the whole of the chapter is really worth reading as we think about the resurrection and what that means. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, the resurrection of the dead. But if it is preached that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile you're still in your sin. And then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Shall we pray? Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would fall afresh upon us now, and we pray that through your words, you'd bring us to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's hopefully not uppermost in your thinking on an August bank holiday, but we really are all going to die. And this was something that the church in days gone by knew really well. Uh, And those old monks used to remind themselves daily of their mortality by going to sleep in coffins. Statistically, though, death is a dead cert for all of us. What is it my dad says? There's nothing certain but death and taxes. Julian Barnes writes, death never lets you down. It remains on call seven days a week and is happy to work three consecutive eight-hour shifts. But today, still, death is the last great taboo, isn't it? We read about it in the papers, we see it on TV every day, it happens to people in our circle, but death is always something that happens to other people. It never happens to us ourselves, it's never going to happen to us. And so we evade and we sanitize this most inconvenient of truths. No one dies anymore, do they? They pass away. They kick the bucket. They pop their clogs. They're happily pushing up daisies in some indefined better place. Some of us, of course, just try and tough it out. There is no afterlife, so let's make the most of it because this is all there is. The truth is, we just don't know what happens when we reach that undiscovered country from whence no traveller returns. 
And so we resort to platitudes and euphemisms. As Woody Allen puts it, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But actually, are we as Christians any better? My mum died suddenly when I was 16, and suddenly the question of life after death became a real personal issue, not just something abstract and philosophical. Where was she? Was she? I kind of expected school to have some answers. Reincarnation, said my German teacher vaguely. Church said nothing, frankly. And on the quest to find out, I eventually came to know Jesus, but that's another story. But even good Northern Irish Christians don't seem to have this sorted. Alf McCreary used to write a column for the Belfast Telly, and he used to ask Christians their idea of the afterlife. Infinite love, responded one. It's vague, replied another, a prominent Presbyterian. I have to say this disturbed me. You know, if we're all heading for eternity, shouldn't we know as much as possible? And shouldn't we put a bit more effort into thinking about this and getting ourselves ready for it if everlasting life is, as it were, the main event and this life just the starter? A better place, we say, but isn't that what the pagans say? When we all get to heaven, we sing... But where or what is heaven and what will we do when we get there anyway? And actually, I'm a bit nervous about this living forever, at least if it's like the usual Christian caricature. If it's just my soul that gets saved, as we insist so frequently, well, what on earth happens to the rest of me? And endless worship, I'm not too sure. And then, if heaven really is my home and I'm just a passing through, well, is there any point to what I do in the here and now? Or should I just pray to get whisked on up as soon as possible? What on earth is the point of it all? And then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But there seems no connection between the two. So how do we make sense of this? What does it really mean to say we believe in the life everlasting? And how does this future hope affect our here and now? Well, in Jesus' own time, there was equal uncertainty. There were Greek philosophers such as Plato, Socrates, and they said that the soul is by nature immortal. It's made in the likeness of the gods. And when separated from the body at death, the body dies and decays, but the soul naturally lives on. And since the true self is in the soul, the death of the body is irrelevant, so you can do what you like, basically. In fact, the world and the body are evil prisons to be escaped from ASAP. But in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, on the other hand, it tells us that God created humans as whole beings, The body, the soul, and the spirit are vitally interconnected. And at death, the soul, spirit, and body are separated. The body returns to the ground from whence it came, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. But this separation of your soul and your body is negative. It's unnatural. And death isn't a happy release, as the Greeks say, but it's an unnatural enemy. It's an unwelcome invasion. 
It's destroyed the original order of things. It's Satan's plan, not God's. It never should have been. And so in the Psalms and Job and in the prophets, we start to see a developing belief in an ultimate resurrection. God looks after the soul at death, and on the last day, he'll give his people new bodies at the time when he judges and remakes the world. But unlike the Greek belief in the immortality of the soul, this physical resurrection is solely a gift of grace, a miraculous divine intervention, because only God is immortal, and only God can give new life to the people that he's made. So the resurrection is a mighty act of God, God's breaking in, the beginning of God's coming reign. Yet even amidst the Jewish circles, there was considerable division. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't, and they lost the bigger picture in squabbles and in idle speculation. Thankfully, though, the creed makes it abundantly clear what true Christian hope is and the event on which it's based. It's not about saving our souls, fleeing this evil world as soon as possible. That's Greek thinking coming in. It's not just any old life after death, living on and looking down in some vague sentimental kind of way. It's not even about going to heaven when we die. No, the life everlasting is defined very clearly in the creed as the resurrection of the body. As we've already said in the creed, he, Jesus, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. It's on Jesus' resurrection that our own resurrection is based. So what does Jesus' resurrection teach us about our own ultimate destiny? Well, Jesus' resurrection assures our own. As I'm sure you know, the New Testament writers set out the evidence for Jesus' resurrection very, very clearly. It's enough to say that Roman executioners knew their stuff. The tomb was empty, a body was never found, and there were multiple appearances of the risen Jesus to the most unlikely witnesses. What's more, the newly risen Jesus, though his body was powerfully and gloriously and supernaturally transformed, able to appear and disappear through locked doors and to pass from heaven to earth and vice versa, so this really was resurrection, not just resuscitation, He was clearly exactly the same person, the same body even, as before. The marks were still there in his hands and his side. The disciples recognized him in the way he broke bread and he opened up the scriptures. So he had the same bodily features and even mannerisms and gestures. So the resurrection was a truly physical event, a truly physical body, in other words, transformed yet perfectly continuous with the same Jesus whom they'd known and loved before he died. As Jesus himself cried out to the disciples, look at my hands and feet, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like I have, and he ate a fish supper to prove it. Is it you yourself, the disciples asked incredulously? Yes, Jesus reassured them. This really is truly me. And so we can move from our belief in Jesus' death and resurrection 
the middle bit of the creed, to our belief in this last bit, the universal resurrection of the dead and therefore the life everlasting. As this little passage makes clear, Jesus' physical resurrection, God's miraculous intervention, is the clearest proof that we too will be raised bodily. Jesus, it says, is the first fruits. In other words, the down payment, the first installment, the absolute guarantee. Indeed, Jesus' resurrection and our own are so inseparably linked that to deny our resurrection, says Paul, is to deny Jesus' resurrection and to make our faith and preaching worthless. If Christ is not risen, we're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. The dead in Christ are lost and we're of all people the most pitiable. May as well just eat, drink and be merry like everyone else if this life is really all there is. But, but, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that is only the start of it. So, when will this resurrection happen and to whom? We need to urgently qualify this because to be faithful to God's warnings as well as to his promises in the scriptures. Because the Bible clearly equates the resurrection of all people with Jesus' return and the judgment that starts the end of all things. We're resurrected in order to be judged, in other words. As Daniel says, on that day multitudes who sleep in the dust will awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. As Paul explains, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And Jesus himself declares, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And the great picture of judgment in Revelation chapter 20 depicts all the world's dead, raised and standing before the throne of God. And a book of deeds is opened, and the dead are judged according to what they've done or failed to do in life, as recorded there. But there's also another book, isn't there? The Lamb's Book of Life, containing the names of those who've put their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you're in that book, it cancels out the first. All the deeds we've done wrong, all the good we haven't done. And so we rise to everlasting life. But if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, we're told, they're thrown into the lake of fire, which Revelation calls the second death. Now, the lake of fire is picture language, as is most of Revelation, and it's not too wise to speculate But in the Gospels, Jesus also talks about this using pretty graphic language. The word for hell is Gehenna, and Gehenna was a real place where all sorts of evils had taken place in Israel's past. And it was now basically a rubbish dump outside the city walls where the people of Jerusalem dumped all the stuff that was rotten and worthless and no longer fit for purpose. And Jesus talks of the fire that's not put out, the worm that never dies, wailing and gnashing of teeth. And again, that's picture language. 
but it seems to suggest an eternal existence cut off from God under his judgment, a failure of intended purpose, a conscious regret, and a sense of loss. And what's more, there's no second chance after death. Between the believer safe with the Lord and the unbeliever, a mighty chasm is fixed. So in fact, there are two deaths that we need to be aware of according to the scripture. There's the first physical death which everyone goes through, but then there's a second spiritual death which is reserved solely for unbelievers. As Jesus promises, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though he dies, the first physical death. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. They won't have to face this second death. As Jesus also warns, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's not so much death itself we should fear then as the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns as Lord and as judge. But if the resurrection only takes place when Jesus returns as judge, what happens to those who've already died, as the Corinthians also asked? Because clearly Jesus hasn't yet returned. Well, the scriptures show us that life after death is a two-stage process. You see, for Jesus too, there was a separation. There was a time lag between his death and his resurrection. And and the creed tells us that before his resurrection, he descended into Hades, the place of the dead, in other words. And for us too, there's an interim stage between our death and resurrection if Jesus does not return first. For those who've died believing in Christ, this state is described as a place of safety, a conscious, intimate awareness of Jesus' presence. As Jesus declared to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul talks about going to be with the Lord, which is far better. And again, he assumes conscious fellowship with Jesus immediately following death. But nevertheless, even paradise or heaven is only a transitory state. Paul describes it as nakedness, a lack of proper clothing. We'll only be clothed fully when Jesus returns and resurrects us, uniting our souls with our bodies again. And take John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. These are very comforting words. But the word for room here means lodging, a temporary stopover, in other words, So even heaven or paradise isn't the end. It's a mere stopover on the way. The real and final destination will be the rejoining of our souls to our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns to bring in God's reign in all its fullness. So what will our resurrection bodies be like, as the Corinthians also asked? Well, just like the body of Jesus, there'll be both similarity and difference. A seed is sown in the ground, but this small wizened husk looks nothing like the gloriously full plant it will eventually become. So our physical stuff remains the same, but 
transformed by the Spirit, will reach our absolute prime, the pinnacle of perfection. This is resurrection, not just resuscitation. New bodies fit for a new creation, no longer subject to sickness or hunger or thirst or decline or death or decay. It is sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power and glory, as as Paul fist pumps triumphantly. Or as Philippians puts it, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. I don't know about you, but I don't tend to look in the mirror first thing in the morning and think, how glorious am I? But at the resurrection, there'll be nothing to blight our appearance. There'll be no more body image issues. There'll be no more weaknesses or limitations or malfunctions. Just as we've borne the image of the earthly Jesus, so we'll bear the image of the heavenly Jesus, writes Paul. When he appears, says John, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. A whole new radiant you, those ads all promise, but only for a limited period, as long as you've got your voucher from Boots. Or I don't know if you've ever bought something new and somebody says, that's really, really you. Well, our resurrection bodies will be really, really us, but on a whole new radiant level. This is one heck of a makeover. In fact, its effects will last forever. And then what will everlasting life be like? Well, God in his word uses descriptions like unimaginable and undescribable. No eye has seen, no ear has ever heard, no human mind can conceive the good things God has prepared for those who love him, writes Paul. So one thing we can be reassured about, everlasting life won't, after all, be boring. And the last two chapters of Revelation give us some clues, though nothing can compare with actually being there. God will come down to earth to dwell with his people once again. He will be our God, and we will be his people. God will be God, absolutely. There'll be nothing that will make us doubt or to feel remote from him. We'll have a new understanding of reality. That's why that happened. That's how you answered that seemingly hopeless prayer I prayed. That's what you were working out all along, we'll say. There'll be resolution to all our concerns and griefs and questions. Now I see through a glass darkly. Then I will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And there'll be great intimacy as God wipes every tear personally from every eye. And there'll be utter relief and incredible joy. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be a place of utter security. The city whose gates are always open. No more sea, no barriers between us, in other words. It'll be a place for all nations, their differences healed completely. No more divisions, no more labels, even no more denominations. God will be worshipped everywhere by everyone. No priests, no temple, no spiritual monopoly. We will all be holy people. His name, his seal and ownership 
written on our foreheads. Rest in peace, we say, wrongly, because though our new lives will be peaceful, we'll not be idle, for we're told that his servants will serve him day and night. So there'll be continued mission and vocation and purpose. There'll be all kinds of creativity and skill and artistry needed as we steward the whole cosmos as God originally intended. There'll be all kinds of culture and enterprise as the kings of the earth bring their splendor and glory into the heavenly city. But there'll be all the satisfaction of creativity, a job well done, without the slog, the writer's block, the stress. For as Revelation puts it, there'll be no more curse. We'll not only serve God, we'll reign with him in triumph forever and ever. And these are awesome concepts for our finite human minds to grasp. So what about the here and now? I don't know about you, but a lot of this was new to me, or at least I think about it only sporadically. But the New Testament writers were absolutely focused. They were longing. They they were praying for the return of Jesus because they knew that's when the resurrection, Christ's judgment and purging of evil, God's new reign of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth would finally come fully. And the last words in the scriptures plead, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, come and sort this. Hurry up, please. And yet we refer to the afterlife, to this great hope, very, very seldom and very vaguely. And even the word afterlife makes it sound like this life is all that really matters. So do we need to recenter ourselves again on Jesus' resurrection and return and all that they entail? Knowing that all human beings will die and be raised for judgment, either for everlasting life or everlasting death, should surely motivate us for mission and evangelism like absolutely nothing else. And let's remember, it's the resurrection of the body that's the Christian hope, not just the saving of soul or even going to heaven or paradise when we die. Yes, the Christian soul does go to be immediately with the Lord on death, but that's only a temporary state until Jesus returns and our souls are reunited with our resurrection bodies in a new heavens and a new earth. We need to be quite clear on this. Otherwise, it's not the Christian faith, the faith of the creed, the teaching of the scriptures that we declare or preach. I was struck too by the sheer physicality in the resurrection account, if that doesn't sound too stupid. You know, knowing the transformation that lies ahead is a reminder to us to treat our bodies, our physical stuff, here and now, with greater respect. We all know that we should avoid immorality and glorify God with our bodies, but is there a temptation for Christians to focus so much on the spiritual bit that we downplay God's purpose for the other bit of us? That's actually challenging for me. And then finally... Let's not forget that God's purpose in this is greater than just us. We come to faith as individuals, yes, but we'll be resurrected or meet with the Lord together and we'll worship and serve him forever together as one united body from the whole world, in fact. And God's concern and passion is not just for me and my personal life after death, vitally important though that is. 
You see, God's plan is to reconcile to himself all things, both things on earth and things in heaven through Christ's blood shed on the cross. That's why, writes Paul in Romans chapter 8, the whole universe is on tiptoe. It's groaning, it's straining, it's longing for its liberation from bondage to decay. When the children of God, that's us, will be finally resurrected and revealed in all our glory. Adopted as sons and daughters, our bodies redeemed, to steward and serve and co-rule the new heavens and the new earth with God, just as he had always intended. So to believe in the resurrection is to declare that the whole of life is redeemable and has a hope and a future, the secular and the physical as well as the simply spiritual, if we should even use such distinctions at all. To believe in the resurrection is to say that how we live and how we work as Christians in the mundane, everyday, physical here and now has eternal significance and purpose as we join with God in his redemptive plan to create and to populate a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. It's beginning now, but it'll be realized fully when Jesus returns. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now it's starting to all make sense. So this is a very long way from being so heavenly minded with no earthly use. The resurrection, says Paul, isn't just pie in the sky when you die. It's not an opt-out clause, it's not wishful thinking, it's a reality, it's truth, it's fact. And as such, it's a massive incentive to keep on working for the Lord right where we are with hope and energy and vision and determination. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, says Paul, at the end of this chapter on the resurrection. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You do know, don't you, that your present labor in the Lord, the mundane, the trivial, the slog, the very hard, the desperately sad, the apparently unsuccessful, is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus lives.